This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, corruption and its toll in Brazil. We'll explore the difficult beginnings for interim president Michelle Temer and the Copa America, the world's oldest football tournament. We'll analyze what's coming for this hemisphere's soccer fans this weekend. But first, Chorzy Martin is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. The government of Colombia signed a historic ceasefire agreement with the country's main rebel group, and the country's president pledged a formal peace treaty would follow by the end of July. Colombia's government has held talks with the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the FARC, for the past three and a half years in the capital of Cuba, Havana. A peace treaty would end more than 52 years of war. Juan Manuel Santos, the president of Colombia, says his country is nearing the end of a very long struggle. This is a historic day for our country. After more than 50 years of conflict, death, attacks, and pain, we have come to the final point of the armed conflict with the FARC. The ceasefire would not formally take effect until both sides sign the final peace treaty next month. If all goes as planned, the FARC has agreed to turn over its weapons to representatives of the United Nations. Brazil's top court says Eduardo Cunha must face additional charges of money laundering and illegal currency dealing. Cunha was one of Brazil's top politicians until Brazil's Supreme Federal Tribunal, Brazil's highest court, suspended him from his post as the president of the Chamber of Deputies last month. Cunha already faces a variety of corruption charges connected to the scandal surrounding the state oil firm Petrobras. Prosecutors say Cunha accepted at least $5 million in bribes, money taken from Petrobras. Cunha is one of the top leaders of the Brazilian Democratic Movement Party, a political party called the PMDB. We'll have more on corruption in Brazil after this newscast. The tremors resonating from the Petrobras scandal are moving beyond Brazil's borders to neighboring Peru. Peru's attorney general was now investigating president-elect Pedro Pablo Kuczynski. Prosecutors in Peru want to know more about Kuczynski's ties to Brazilian construction firm Odebrecht. Prosecutors in Brazil have linked that construction firm to bribery and kickback schemes in the Petrobras scandal. Kuczynski favored Odebrecht in major highway construction projects in Peru when Kuczynski served as Peru's finance minister at the beginning of the century. Prosecutors say more than $2 billion in legal payments can now be connected to the Petrobras scandal. The U.S. Supreme Court deadlocked, and that means President Barack Obama's executive order on immigration will be rolled back. Obama had ordered that about 4 million unauthorized immigrants should be shielded from deportation. Those covered by the order were either parents of U.S. citizens or the children of unauthorized immigrants. The Supreme Court issued a rare 4-4 tie in its ruling. That means an injunction stopping the president's order will stand. Many of those covered by the ruling are from Mexico and Central America. It's a modern twist on the biblical plagues. Venezuela seems to have all the bad news these days. Shortages of all types, food, electricity, and medical supplies. And now comes a drought. 
and that drought has its own after effects, including the emergence of an eerie ghost town. Residents deserted the town of Potosi 32 years ago. Engineers flooded the town as a part of the Mountain Dam Project in rural Venezuela. After the flood, the only reminder Potosi existed was the tip of the town's church steeple, barely poking above the waters of a mountain lake. But now with the drought, the remains of old shops, homes, and of course, the town's church have emerged from the lake waters. Some of the town's former residents have returned to see what's left after all those years underwater. But now, the most frequent visitors to the ghost town are herds of cattle that like grazing among the town's ruins. For Latin Pulse, I'm Chorsey Martin. Thanks, Chorsey. Our shout out this week goes to our listeners in Washington, D.C. Our listening group in D.C. was our second largest this past week, behind only our listeners in the capital city suburbs of Northern Virginia. So we say thank you very much to all of our listeners in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere around the globe. And now we return to that slow motion train wreck, the politics of Brazil, the Petrobras corruption scandal, a scandal the Brazilians call the car wash investigation. That scandal threatens to consume large swaths of Brazilian politicians. At the center, interim President Michel Temer and his party, the PMDB. There's also suspended President Dilma Rousseff of the Workers' Party to consider, and Brazil's Senate has yet to begin its impeachment trial against her in earnest. We asked Alex Quadros to help us untangle the latest from the scandal. He's the author of the forthcoming book, Brazilianaires, Wealth, Power, Decadence, and Hope in an American Country. He joined us via Skype from New York City. You know, I, I think it's important perhaps more than before, to highlight that Temer is an interim president uh, because his first uh, not quite six weeks have been incredibly rocky. And uh, there's speculation for the first time, I think, since uh, the impeachment process began against president uh, or suspended president Juma Hussef, uh, that she might survive it at the end. Um, but last week, what came out was a bombshell, which was the, the first time that uh, the interim president, Thamed, had been directly implicated in uh, these massive corruption investigations, the car wash investigations. Uh, he'd been cited tangentially in a few different uh, uh, plea bargain testimonies, um, but now a former official at Petrobras, the state oil company, is saying that Themed asked for him to funnel money from the state oil company illegally into the mayoral campaign of a member of his party uh, in 2012. And Themed, of course, denies it, but this same oil official uh, his name is Sergio Machado, is deeply enmeshed in party politics in Brazil. I mean, he's, he's one of the sort of uh, under-the-radar but very important operators uh, for the PMDB, Temer's party, uh, for years. And this guy has been secretly recording a number of politicians over the past several weeks, and what we've seen, uh, the chaos in, in Thamed's government is largely due to this guy uh, because he secretly recorded conversations 
with uh, two of Thamed's ministers uh, in which they appeared to be trying to work to halt the car wash investigations. And when this was released to the press, they were forced to step down. Uh, another of Thamed's ministers stepped down because of uh, similar accusations from the same guy. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, this is incredibly troubling that you have, you know, after an impeachment process that while technically focused on uh, budget violations by President Juma Hussef, also, you know, was part of a supposed campaign to root out corruption uh, in the Brazilian government uh, because it was the Workers' Party who orchestrated uh, this giant corruption scheme at Petrobras. So at the very least, it's a, it, it could seem like a kind of Pyrrhic victory to go through this massive rupture and kick out this party from government with all the chaos uh, involved only to have a new government come in that appears to be equally corrupt and was uh, one of the workers' party's partners in the scheme. On the other hand, it is, uh, in a way, a promising sign because I think a lot of people were concerned, myself included, that when uh, Demid and his allies came into government, they would take advantage of a feeling of national catharsis and halt these corruption investigations. It now seems that some of them really did want to, but are failing to. And that's a sign that these corruption investigations may be stronger than uh, any one politician. And that's something really new in Brazil. Uh, and it's also a sign that the media which had broadly supported uh, impeachment, um, is not willing to give the new government a total pass, uh, is still scrutinizing the new government, publishing revelations. Uh, so, it, you know, it's kind of a mixed bag in that sense. We should be clear these allegations against interim President Temer are not at the same level of the amount of uh, corruption that we see elsewhere in the car wash investigation. Uh, I, I think it, the total is about $400,000 of illegal campaign donations that we're talking about. Still a considerable amount of cash. But this also speaks to, as you say, the partnership between the PMDB, Temer's party, and the Workers' Party, President Rousseff's party, that, that we, we now clearly see that they were partners and also perhaps partners in corruption and crime. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the Workers' Party, you know, felt that in order to govern Brazil, it had to make alliances with uh, the old establishment. And, you know, that, that, that political calculation, uh, a very pragmatic calculation about the way power works in Brazil, led the Workers' Party to the the state that it's in now, uh, you know, being kicked out of power and largely discredited among Brazilians. On the other hand, Brazil has a structural problem with its political system, which is that, for one thing, you have more than two dozen parties in Congress, 
most of them don't have any recognizable ideology. They exist as, uh, there's a term in Portuguese, partidos de aluguel, as rental parties. And they're there to offer their votes in return for patronage. So, you know, the directorship of a state company, you know, the posts in a ministry, and they use these positions so that they can extract kickbacks from the budgets that they end up in control of. And, you know, the other, the other big problem of Brazilian politics is that elections are extremely expensive. Uh, it's a very large country, and because of the way that uh, the political system is structured, candidates have to run not only against the members of, you know, two, three dozen other parties, but even have to fight for uh, space with uh, members of their own parties when, when running for Congress. So you have these structural factors that incentivize corruption. Obviously, this is not to say that it's uh, justified or okay in any way. It's just to show that Brazil needs a systemic reform before it's going to fundamentally change the way that government happens. And part of what we're seeing in Temer's government is the fact that you know, he still has to work with this system. You know, that's why after having promised to nominate a cabinet of meritorious technocrats, he nominated some of the worst, oldest oligarchical elements in Brazilian politics, and three of his ministers have had to step down because of corruption investigations. I, I want to get back to the ministers in a bit, but... As this is playing out, doesn't this look exactly like the scenario that suspended President Rousseff said all along, that the PMDB um, had been a Trojan horse in her government, that they are using her impeachment as a cover to try to get away from the car wash? And, and as she has said, that this is, this is amounting to uh, a bit of a coup. Well, I think that it's important to realize that there is more than one interest involved here. Uh, I don't think that this proves in any way that what is happening is a coup. There are definitely, as we've seen uh, all but proven in these secret recordings, there are elements of uh, Demet's party and his coalition who hoped that by supporting impeachment, that they would manage to uh, save themselves from jail. Uh, but that's, that's not the only interest involved. And I think it's uh, simplistic to imply that Temer is just, you know, the leader of this kind of uh, oligarchical mafia that, uh, you know, just wants to take power and uh, save itself. Um, you know, there is a concern with the economy and if, if he did make some uh, more admirable uh, appointments to his cabinet, they're all in the economic area. Uh, people who are widely respected, like the finance minister, Enrique Merelis, who served as central bank president under Lula. Now, you can agree, you can agree or disagree, of course, with uh, the measures that are being proposed. But I do think that there is a genuine desire to get the economy back on track. And 
you know, the idea that it's a coup because congressmen voted based on their self-interest rather than on the public interest, you know, I think if you, if you start to think about decisions in Congress that way, you know, maybe you have to apply that same logic to the projects of the Workers' Party years because the fact is that the Workers' Party, since coming into power with Lula in 2003, used the Petrobras scheme and another famous corruption scheme, the Maisalon, uh, to secure the loyalty of Congress. Um, but, you know, the legitimacy of uh, the projects that the Workers' Party passed are not in question. Um, so I, I think that, you know, there's a kind of selective uh, reasoning about the legitimacy of Congress's actions, and it all underscores how necessary is a systemic change in the way that politics works in Brazil. Thank you so much, Alex Quadros, the author of the forthcoming book, Brazilian Heirs, Wealth, Power, Decadence, and Hope in an American Country, joining us on Latin Pulse via Skype from New York City today. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll be hearing more from our interviews with Alex Quadros later this summer. Coming up, the Copa America. What can we expect in the finale of this year's tournament? Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn, indignate, act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. This Sunday, football teams from Argentina and Chile will square off in New Jersey in the United States. They're vying for the Copa America in the centennial edition of this soccer tournament. Most of the headlines about the tournament have touted Argentina's star Lionel Messi and his team are the favorites. We asked Joshua Nadel about the importance of the Copa America. Nadel is with North Carolina Central University, and he's the author of Football, Why Soccer Matters in Latin America. He joined us via Skype from Carborough, North Carolina. Um, I would start with, um, with the fact that it is the oldest of the, of the regional championships. Um, you know, it, the, 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 the 1916 start uh, and the 1916 foundation of, of CONMEBOL, the South American Soccer Federation, um, really sort of sets in motion, uh, I think, the series of, of regional federations, uh, regional confederations, excuse me, starting throughout the soccer world. Um, you know, it, it predates UEFA, which is the much, much better known European uh, federation, confederation, by almost 50 years. Um, so I, I think in that regard, it, it matters quite a bit. Um, on another sort of on the other side of it, I would say it, it, in some ways it doesn't matter at all, um, which we can get into because it's, it, this championship actually happened last year. Um, and so it's, it's a one-off sort of, you know, 100th anniversary celebration, um, which is being done for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, that said, whenever there's soccer in Latin America, it, uh, it sort of galvanizes people it make, takes them away from from whatever's happening and certainly there's been an awful lot happening in Latin America that that uh, I think politicians and others might want people's attention taken away from um, 
but uh, but and and it, there's always good soccer. In fact, this year I think it's actually been surprisingly good, uh, especially when compared to to last year. Uh, we're about to head into the final this weekend. Any surprise that Chile and Argentina are there? Not at all. Um, I think you know the, they were the teams that were in the final last year, um, so it's not surprising given that it's so close on the heels. The teams are more or less the same uh, in their in their makeups, um, and so they're you know they, they they certainly would have been among the pre uh, the pre tournament favorites. Certainly, Argentina is is considered the number one team in the world by FIFA, um, and Chile I think is number five. So you know. They're, they're two of the best teams in the world. Um, what is surprising or, or what's different between this year and last year, I would say one of the differences, is, uh, is Chile's style of play. Last year they were perhaps the most cynical um, and most defensive-minded teams. Um, you know, they, there were incidents with, with in, you know, intentionally trying to, to, draw, uh, to, to draw retaliation from other players um, touching body parts that shouldn't be touched in soccer any really in, in anywhere other than intimate situations uh, in order to, to, to get retaliations. And, and they eventually drew a red card on, on an Uruguayan player. Um, so they were, playing, they were playing very cynically. Uh, and this year they've been playing this, this really beautiful soccer uh, as evidence. I mean, they, they really destroyed Mexico. Uh, they beat Mexico 7 nothing, which was a shock because Mexico was actually one of the preseason favorites, um, or pre-tournament favorites, excuse me. Uh, and, uh, and then last night in a, in a very strange sort of rain-delayed event, um, they, beat, they beat Colombia, um, who's also a top five team in the world, uh, 2 nothing. So pretty handily, ultimately, with two very early goals. Um, so, I mean, I think in that regard, it's, there's been a surprise. Because we're talking about players and because we're talking about the final coming up this weekend, I think I have one name for you, Messi. <laughs> He's so beautiful to watch. Um, you know, whether looking at the free kick that he took against the United States or the passes that he had to set up goals against the uh, against the United States against Venezuela um, you know he had sort of a in, in that quarterfinal match he had a pinpoint 40 yard pass you know to set up to, to set up the assist for the first goal and he's really I mean I he's at at the top of his game right now um, he's now the leading scorer in in Argentine soccer history um, so he's you know I think he really he's shown that he, he stands alone, uh, not only in Latin America, I think, but in the world. Does Chile have an answer for him? Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how Chile decides to play. Uh, after, after two games of really coming out and playing attacking soccer, uh, I'm, I'm interested to see if they sort of, you know, in, in soccer cliche, park the bus uh, in front of the goal, play defense, and, and, and revert to sort of the cynical style that they played that they tend to play uh, or that they have tended to play in the, in the past couple of years. Um, in fairness to, to Argentina, there are many other uh, world-class players on that team. Um, you know, on paper, Argentina should really, they should win. Um, and I won't say that it will be an easy win, but they should win. Um, but, you know, games are not played on paper. Um, who knows what's going to happen? Um, you know, as it is, Argentina's got at least two, possibly three players out with injury. 
Um, so we'll see. Um, but but I, I would I would imagine Argentina is going to win. And what about the fans in the United States? Have they appreciated the the soccer football that they have seen in this Copa? Um, that's you know that's a great question. Um, I think if we're looking at TV numbers, um, you know the matches have been drawing incredibly well. The, the U.S. Argentina game you know, was the biggest draw of the tournament. It's one of the biggest draws that the U S men's team has ever had in soccer, um, just on sort of the, the, um, the Fox platforms. Univision, I read recently that Univision is actually the number one sports broadcaster this month. Um, so clearly there are a lot of people <laughs> tuning in, uh, to Univision and those numbers. So, so, you know, you have to add sort of the Fox numbers and the Univision numbers to get to the, the total pe- number of people watching, uh, the Copa. So I, I think that in that regard, in terms of television, you know, it's been a, a pretty big success. Um, I'm not sure about, you know, actually going to matches. There's a lot of empty seats uh, in, in, you know, particularly in the early stages, but even, you know, last night, um, there were a lot of empty seats in the upper deck in Chicago. And I, I was surprised by that. Um, I would have thought, you know, Chile and Colombia, in Chicago, that should have drawn a lot of people. I mean, it drew plenty, but uh, but I would have I would have expected the stadium to be full. And I think also I'm 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 sort of I don't know how much the Euro also happening at the same time uh, is affecting the Copa, um, right? I mean, obviously the Copa is on our time scale, so our, our our time schedule, so it's it's easier to watch. You don't have to watch a game at at noon. Um, but um, but I think that without the Euro, if the Euro Cup wasn't happening, I actually think that the Copa would be drawing more of an audience, um, both live and on television. It's a great marketing move to bring the Copa America here to the United States. Um, and that's really what, you know, I, I alluded to this earlier. I mean, this is, that's why the Copa America Centenario is happening at all, um, is really marketing and, uh, and, and promotion, right? Uh, it's, it's sort of a money game. What haven't we discussed that you think is important to consider? I don't want to. I don't want to end on a on a negative point. But the question of why this Copa America, right? Um, and the question of the the power of uh, sports marketing firms and the power of money and corruption in soccer. I mean, you know, this this Copa America was arranged by uh, traffic sports marketing. Uh, which was one of the major players in the FIFA scandal, um, you know, and there were tens of millions of dollars of bribes, um, according to the BBC. Anyway, there were tens of millions of dollars of bribes paid to different federations and confederations in order to have this Copa happen at all. And I think that's, you know, that's a problem, right? Um, and that's, that's, a, that's a, a problem for world soccer in general. This isn't just something that's a, a Latin American problem by any stretch of the imagination. Um, that's been a relatively undiscussed thing. And I, I think that's sort of, you know, ultimately when, when sporting events happen, when mega events happen, there's a, in the run-up, there's often discussion about, you know, about cost overruns and corruption. And then when the event starts, everybody focuses on, on the, you know, the beauty of the game when it comes to soccer. Um, you know, but it is important to, to sort of keep in mind the, the whys and hows of this and, and what, you know, what money and ultimately sort of corruption has done to, to the game that, 
you know, some people say belongs to the people. Uh, I'm not sure I, I would like to say that that's true, but I, I'm not sure that it is. Thank you so much, Joshua Nadel of North Carolina Central University, the author of Football, Why Soccer Matters in Latin America, joining us via Skype from Carborough, North Carolina. Thanks for being our guest on Latin Pulse. Thanks again. Thanks for joining us for Latin Pulse this week. And now a program advisory. Latin Pulse will be taking a break next week due to the July 4th holiday in the United States. You can find us back online July the 8th. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. You can also find our program at the website, Latin America Goes Global. You can find that website at Latin America Goes Global, written as all one word, dot O-R-G. If you're looking for earlier editions of our program, we're available in other locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Henty Flow. And as always, you can find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website. You can find it at linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin dash pulse. That's linktv.org slash Latin dash pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, production assistant Chorsey Martin and technical director Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2016 Las Rocas Productions. Music